John chapter 4. John chapter... Verse 3. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, John tells us. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And it strikes me that a woman who doesn't think a Jew should be talking to a Samaritan woman has a lot to say. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've correctly said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you are now, who you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming now, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Okay, hold it right there. Father, would you lead us into this and lead us into all truth this morning and give us open hearts and willing hearts and ears to hear. And Father, prepare us to receive whatever you have for us as a fellowship, Lord, as your children, as families, as individuals. I ask, Lord, you would convict our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one of the most beautiful, inviting, liberating, and defining moments in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This meeting, this personal meeting with an otherwise seemingly insignificant woman, but a woman for whom Jesus went out of his way, passing through Samaria, which Jews would avoid at all costs. And actually, it wasn't out of his way. It would shorten the trip to go through Samaria, but no Jew would do it. Going from Judea back up to the Galilee, you would have taken the circuitous route and avoided the Samaritans altogether. But Jesus had to go through Samaria, had to meet with this woman. We don't know who she was. She didn't know that for this divine appointment, she was the appointee. She's just going out to get water at the well. And if chapter 3 was Nick at night, I'm calling chapter 4 Sammy at the well. Because all we know is she's a Samaritan woman, so we'll call her Sammy. We don't know anything more about her except what 
emerges in this conversation. And we're not going to talk really much more about her today. Come back on Wednesday night. We'll walk through the intricacies of, of Jesus' relationship with her and how they spoke and, and what took place there. But I want to do something else as we start out this morning. Jake, why don't you grab that mic? And I'm going to ask you a question, and you get to answer. You get to answer with one sentence or less. I'm preaching, not you. We're family here. Don't worry about getting it right or wrong. Just I want to ask you all, what is your best definition of worship? What's your best definition of worship? Go. And I'm holding the mic, but yeah. One sentence. I would say that it's action. Action. Cool. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Come on, come on. We're going to just sit here and wait. Okay. I'm not preaching until I get a few. Praise. 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 Amen. Say it again. Praise. Praise. All right. Anyone else? Come on. Best definition for worship. This is what we do every Sunday, every Wednesday as we gather. Glorifying God. Amen. All right. She took my answer. <laughs> Glorifying to God. All right. Susie. You help me. All the way over here. Come on, Vanna. Come on. As I adore him, I'm in love with him. Amen. Amen. Did she just take yours, LB? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so it is focusing on God, whether you're acting or speaking or worshiping, just it's focusing on who he is and giving him the glory, yeah. Amen. Kind of a run-on sentence, but we'll allow it. <laughs> the reason we were created. Amen, amen. One or two more, one or two more. All right, we'll get him. We'll get you right up here. Describing the good things that God has done. Amen. Good. And Jake, right up here. Right. Okay. We can get Hillary too. We get well, two more. Right in the same row, and then, and then you can have a break. <laughs> <laughs> Unconditional faith. Mm. Humbling yourself in honor. Amen. Okay. Good answers. Um, all of them. It's funny, you ask a question like that. How do you define worship? We're like, what do you mean how do you define it? It's, it's what we do. It's what we're supposed to be about. I think we have confusion on it, and I'm not, not based on your answers, all very good answers. We express worship, and we're going to talk about worship this morning. We express it through several obvious external ways. We express our worship in song, and a lot of times people think, Singing. Well, that's one of many ways as followers of Jesus we worship. We worship in prayer. When we take communion, come to the Lord's table, it is an act of worship that we offer. We worship in Bible study. And I, I say this from time to time. I hope you know that. I hope you know when we are opening the scriptures and moving through the scriptures that you are acting in faith and worship. And that what the word does to our hearts as we're listening to God teach us is it causes us to worship him, to praise him more. Now, you may not jump up and say hallelujah during teaching, or you may. We've had that. But it's, it's what's happening in your heart to the Lord. You're, you're worshiping him. So in Bible study, in the word we worship, by declarative praise, 
which is other than singing. Sometimes just by sitting around and talking about and sharing the goodness of God, the glories of God, the honor of God spoken. We worship in tithes and offerings. I've also said this before. I hope you never drop anything in the box without first thanking God for the ability to even drop something in the box. I hope that that is an act of worship, acts of self-sacrificial service in the name of the Lord, all of these ways that we worship God because worship is the external expression of the internal love, affection, surrender, submission, and even obedience of followers of Jesus. We are commanded to come worship him. Not because he needs it, but because he deserves it. And we need it. We need to worship him. It's how we were created. At heart, worship is a matter of the heart, but not so individual and so independent as we have, I think, been led to believe over years and decades in, in, our, in our culture. It's a matter of the heart. Now, I, I got to say something here, and I'm, I'm, I want you to know I'm speaking with spiritual blinders on which is a good thing. There are a lot of things God doesn't allow me to remember and he doesn't allow me to see. For example, I don't know what goes on in the foyer while we're gathered in here. I don't know. I don't know who comes earlier or comes late. Some of the early people, yeah, I do because I'm, I'm, I'm chatting up or whatever, but I don't know. If people walk in late, I, I really, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of clued out on that. If you ask me to give you a list of five or 10 latecomers, some of you could probably do a better job than me. I just, I don't see it. I remember years ago getting these glasses because I got to the point where if I take them off, I can see Bill and Susie and the rest of you are just a blur. And I got these because I wanted to see people and I thought, well, actually, it's kind of a good thing that everybody's a blur. Well, it, it's like that for me. <laughs> that sounded wrong. I didn't mean that like that. No, but it, it's, it's a good thing for me that I don't carry that stuff and I don't see who's coming in and what's going on and what's happening out there and all that. I, I don't see it. I just, we begin to worship together and we move through this process together before the Lord. And that's kind of my experience, first service and into second service each week and Wednesday nights. And so I don't see all the comings and goings that everyone else sees. I, I think you needed to know that because I want to say some things. Number one, when worship is just a warm-up, when it's a take-it-or-leave-it buffer or an appetizer to the teaching, something's wrong. When we sit in the fireside room or meander the foyer or remain in our cars until worship is over, something is wrong. When we wander in well after worship is underway or check out before the last song is sung, I dare anyone to do that this morning. When casual coffee and fellowship in the foyer is more important than the immediate worship of the Most High God, something's wrong. And there are a lot of these things that I, I, I've been thinking about and pouring over, and I know it's easy for me to say because, Pastor Rick, you're paid to be here on time, so you'd better. I, I get that. And I, I know how hard it is sometimes to move a family out the door and get them here, and I know that there are circumstances in life. And I know, for example, on Wednesday nights, a lot of times people need a place of optional as long as we're there in time for the teaching. When that's our mentality, even if unspoken, something's wrong. We need a spiritual EKG. We don't understand what worship is really about. 
And I guarantee the last thing on anyone's mind in heaven will be our felt needs. This is even a bigger issue than our behavior, than our comings and our goings to and from worship services. This whole idea, and all you got to do is spend an hour on Christian radio to hear it. It is more about us than it is about him. I understand we are self-centered, egocentric creatures. We tend to think in terms of ourselves and the world revolving around ourselves. But when it comes to our relationship with God, something needs to happen in the heart where we shift from self to Savior, where the focus gets off of me. And what's marvelous, and you all know this, when the focus shifts from me to him, things are better. My perspective is better. I'm encouraged. I'm comforted. I'm, see, I'm already back to myself. But there are benefits to worship, and yet the worship is not, it's not about or, or for me. In, in heaven, I don't think anybody's going to ask, how many more songs is Michael going to lead? I don't think anybody's going to be thinking, what's on the menu at Gabriel's Grill this afternoon? That'd be cool to check that out. No one's going to be asking, is my fine linen rumpled, wrinkled, or riding up? So many of the things that, that catch our attention or take us away will have no place around the throne room of God. I can't imagine what that will really be like to be there to worship. Revelation 19.6, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And I promise you when we're there at that point, we're not going to have anything else to worry about. Won't that be great? Think about all the stuff that you worry about, that we're all concerned about. Done. No one's going to be looking at their watch thinking, boy, I've got stuff to do. Yeah, you do. One thing, worship. And we will praise him and love him, and no one's going to be saying how long. It's just, it will be glorious. The word worship appears 12 times in John's gospel. Ten of those are in this conversation, which is why suddenly, and this was the realization, I was going to teach the story of the Samaritan woman this morning. That was my plan coming in. And suddenly this issue of worship, and it's been on my beef and cheddar and a large Sprite. Man, at my age, large Sprite's a bad, bad idea. Just a bad idea. And it works the opposite of what you would think. I sugar crash. I'm out in 10 minutes. So the meeting begins, and I'm sitting there in that comfortable chair, and the fire's on, and the, and the Sprite's just disappearing into my system. And, and I'm like, how am I going to make this meeting tonight? And then we started talking about worship, and I, I think I kind of went off, not on our shepherds. But I, I unloaded because there is so much that I see going on that really concerns me in Christianity today, related to worship. In, in our fellowship, and I say this with deep love and also with deep conviction because I am the chief of all bad worshipers. So don't think that I am speaking against or down. I am speaking to hear first, but to all of us together, this idea of what worship is. And, and we come to Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman, and, and it's a defining moment of worship in the New Testament. What he says here is absolutely 
amazing and declarative and explanatory, giving us understanding of worship. Ten times the word worship is used here, and then, uh, yeah, ten times, and then two more times in the rest of the gospel. John chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, said to him, this is to the blind man that he had, the blind, man blind since birth, and Jesus healed him, and they booted him out of the temple. And he went and found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man once blind, now seeing, said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He worshiped him. John tells us this guy committed blasphemy if Jesus was anything less than God. John 9, 38. John 12, verse 20. There were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And those are the 12 uses of worship. 10 here and then those other two. This is a defining moment. What does worship mean? I want to invite you to set all assumptions aside about what we think worship is. Let's just listen to Jesus. And let's let him instruct us as to the meaning of worship. First thing I want you to know is, is the definition of the word worship. The Greek word for worship used throughout the New Testament. We, we see it all the time. We see worship and we think worship. But it's so generic that, again, when we ask for definition, we have to stop and go, huh, worship. Well, it's praise, right? Down, P-R-O-S, pros, kuneo, K-U-N-E-O. Proskuneo is the Greek word for worship used throughout the New Testament. Divide up the word, which a lot of the Greek words, you can do this. It'll have, you know, two words put together. And the first word is pros, pros, which means come to, you know, to approach, to, to come near, pros. And then kuneo, which comes from the root word kunios, which means dog. Come here, dog. What it means and, and what it meant to the Greeks, proskuneo, it was a dog licking its master's hand. And that is worship. A dog licking its master's hand. Now, think of it in terms of, of a pet, of the sweetness of your, your little puppy or your little dog comes running up. When a dog licks the hand of the master, the dog is subservient, acknowledging who's in charge, who's feeding, who's caring for, who's, who's over this little beast. The dog licks the hand. It's a, it's, a, it's a sign of affection and maybe a please, could I have a treat? Proskuneo. That's worship. And the first time we see worship in the Bible, so throughout the New Testament, proskuneo, proskuneo, a dog licking its master's hands, this picture of worship. It's a subservience. But then in the Bible, the first time we see the word worship, it's a different word. It's now in Hebrew. It's Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. This is a seminal chapter in the Bible, the story of Abraham and Isaac going up Mount Moriah for the sacrifice of a son. And in this picture, verse 5, Abraham says to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And that's the first time we see the word worship in the Bible. We're going to go worship. 
And what was Abraham's act of worship? He was going to go sacrifice that which he loved the most, his only son. The word worship there in the Hebrew is shachach. Shachach, which means bow down. Bow down. Now, if you want to study worship, and I encourage you to think about this, think about doing this, you go to the Psalms, right? Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship. There's the word, worship. Shacha. They will worship before you. And that word, bow down. All the, na- the day's coming. Day's coming. When all the nations will bow down before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth, I like prosperous in the Hebrew, that's fat ones. We're well fed in the kingdom. All the well fed prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. This is speaking about worship in the millennial kingdom. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. That's worship. Man, David just cuts loose. By the way, Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. That's the psalm that that pours out of the crucifixion of Jesus and shows that his crucifixion purchases entrance into the kingdom. It's an amazing psalm. David adds another word to worship in verse 29. We see the word worship in verse 27, meaning bow down, but in verse 29 we see all will bow before him, and the word bow there means to kneel, to kneel, or, or to literally bend the knee. Nikra is the word. And so in this psalm we hear praise Stand in awe, glorify, tell, declare, kneel, bow. Worship obviously is overtly expressive. Something that somehow began to be disseminated in our culture is worship is personal, private, and intimate, not for anybody but me. It's not true. That's not true. Now, you can have personal, private, intimate times of worship. I wouldn't say that that should be taken away from anyone where our hearts are pouring out to the Lord and we're all by ourselves before the Lord and giving him all we've got. But you know what? When we gather, our worship is demonstrative as a fellowship. It's something we do together. 
I have so many thoughts in my head that a lot of them are going to go crosswise and come back and forth and all over the place this morning. But another word for worship, after we've talked about all this overt worship, Hebrews 13, 5, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, which tells me that it is not okay to stand there during worship with your mouth shut. Well, I can't sing. Make a joyful noise. Don't worry about the notes if you can't sing. This is not about you, and it's not about the person standing next to you. It is about the Lord. It is for God. Psalm 2, verse 12, and here's the other word we need to recognize. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do homage is nashku, which means kiss. And it really is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek proskuneo, a dog licking its master's hand, kiss the sun, kiss the sun. The implication is like you would kiss the ring of a, of a ruler or a master. You would bow down and, and take the hand and kiss the hand, or as the dog licking the hand, it is a subservient action before a mighty master which tells us then that our worship is humble, submissive, subservient. It's the act of an affectionate slave, one whose master treats him like a son or her like a daughter, and yet we know that we don't deserve that. We know by all rights we should simply be slaves, though we are family, and so we bow to kiss the master's hand. Psalm 95, verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Praise, glorify, bow down, bend the knee, lick the hand, little dogs, kiss the sun. Worship. Philippians 2.10 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, <laughs> And then every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I ask you, do we come to the assembly ready to kiss the hand of Jesus? Ready to bow down and or to kneel? Or is that beneath us? So the question is, is it beneath me or am I beneath him? I think how we answer that would affect our hearts when it comes to worship. I am personally sensing what I would call, and I mentioned this to our worship team this morning, a worship crisis in the church. Because worship and Christian music is all about us. It's all about our experience, our expression, our current emotional, physical, even spiritual needs. Again, an hour on Christian radio will show you that, that it is less about him than it is about me the lyrics of the songs and, and the direction the songs go and so much of the worship. And I was so excited when we started this fellowship in the early 2000s that there was a lot of really, the church was turning in a good direction worship-wise. Matt Revin and Chris Tomlin and some of these other people, and I only named them to say they were writing songs that were simply worship. You know, holy to the Lord, praise to the Lord, worship to God, blessed be the name. It was all worship, and that seemed to be the, the direction that Christian music in general was going. Now, it's like, I'm not sure if, if it's, you know, a Christian artist or Ariana Grande. Is that how you say it, grande, like a burrito? 
You do? Okay. I can't tell the difference. And when the songs come on, and, and man, it's all about the grooves and, and the, the, little, the little rap thrown in there and stuff that a lot of it on Christian radio you can't even do at church. And the stuff you could do at church, and every now and then people say, hey, Rick, this is a great song. Why don't we do it? And I look at the lyrics and I go, where's the worship? It's all about me. I want a song about me. I, you know, I can, I can get that anywhere. It's not that Jesus is insensitive to our needs. And it's not that God doesn't meet us where we are and bring the comfort that we so desire and lift us up and defend us and fight our battles and do all the things that these songs talk about. But in the Bible, not one time is the worship portrayed as for the people. It's for the Lord. It's not for you. It's not for me. What right do we ever have to say, I didn't like that this morning? Well, where was your heart? Where was your focus? Unless, of course, we're playing all Christian radio songs, then I understand. (laughs) Worship is not for us, except as it fixes our eyes on the only one deserving of true worship. Revelation 7, 12, amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might to our God forever and ever Amen. This morning, the challenge before us is to take responsibility for the heart and the hearts that we present to our God. Back to the story, the Samaritan woman was avoiding responsibility. And that's something that's kind of obvious to me. It's somewhat inherent in the, in the story. She's given up trying, even in her life, allowing her circumstances to dictate her living situation. She's had five husbands, and now she's shacking up with number six, and she's not even married to him. Kind of giving that up. She's got the bennies without the hard work of commitment because the first five times didn't go so well, and I read the story, and the first thing I think is she needs the seventh man. She needs Jesus. The first six didn't go too well. Isn't it interesting Jesus doesn't avoid her? Not only is she a Samaritan, and a woman, but she is, well, she's been with a lot of guys. And she's the one he goes to meet. Her replies are littered with dodges and evasions, and some more of that we'll look at Wednesday. But if you begin picking up in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And she does what, this is typical What so many will do who want to avoid the personal, they will turn to the theological. Let's talk about your church stuff. Or why about you Christians? You guys don't even get along. What are you asking me to, you know, what are you asking me about my life for? Don't don't you guys, you know, not even agree on stuff in your churches, you know, and then they'll turn the conversation to the theological. And in this case, because Jesus is getting too close to her heart. He's called out something very personal. Obviously, he knows some things about her, and so she immediately shifts to, I perceive you're a prophet. Our father's worshiped, and she's off on this church stuff. Rather than dealing with where he was taking her, she tries to put him off by pointing out their obvious denominational differences (laughs) or cultural differences. And it is a typical smokescreen of someone trying to avoid the truth. 
And anymore, if I'm talking with someone and they go that direction, I know immediately, oh, you just don't want to deal with what's going to make your heart a little uncomfortable. And that's where she's in. She, she, she tries to put him off. Okay, well, you people and my people, my people worship here, you people worship there. And by the way, here, as we read earlier in the chapter, was Sikar. Sikar, which is a, a town. Uh, she actually was at a well just outside Sikar. Sikar is Shechem, today Nablus. And just outside Nablus today, it's still there, is Jacob's well. Jacob's well is where Jesus meets up with this woman in the shadow of mighty Mount Gerizim. Now, if you put Mount Gerizim next to Mount Rainier, you would not think mighty. You'd think big hill. So big hill Gerizim is right there, and they look up to it, and, and this, is, this is, you know, in the heart, truly the heart of Samaria and the Samaritan people. They were a mix, Samaritans, of Jews and foreigners, really came about after 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came in and they wiped out northern Israel and they hauled most off into captivity, but some of the Jews they allowed to remain there and they also mixed in foreigners from other countries that they had conquered and sent them to Samaria where they all intermixed and intermingled and lost their national heritage. That was the Assyrian way. That's actually a good way if you want to conquer a people, mix in so that they don't have any more national identity and that was Samaria. No longer northern Israel. There was Jewish sentimentality there. Some old Jewish traditions carried on. Even Torah, the Samaritans had their own version of Torah. Similar in most ways, but significant little things that were changed within their scriptures. And so they lived and worshiped and believed in Samaria was the deal, and Mount Gerizim was their Mount Moriah, was their holy mountain. In fact, they even built a temple there. Mount Gerizim, you might recall, was the Mount of Blessing that when the Israelites came into the land, there was Mount Gerizim, there was Mount Ebal. Shechem is at the foot of both. And what's interesting is Mount Gerizim, they considered it, the Samaritans, the highest mountain in the world, even though Mount Ebal was taller. But they considered Mount Gerizim to be their holy mountain. Shechem, right below there, and it rises up, and you may recall this, that Gerizim means cut off. Cut off. And that's interesting because the Samaritans were a cut off people. And they were cut off from the rest of the Jews. They believed Gerizim to be the central mountain, as I said, of the world. They believed Gerizim rose above the flood. They believed that Mount Gerizim was the ferry dock for Noah's Ark. That that's where Noah landed. So they had a lot of sense of holiness around Mount Gerizim. Again, they kept Torah, but it was a changed, blended version of Torah, and they built their own temple in the days of Nehemiah. In the 5th century B.C., they built a temple on Mount Gerizim. The remnants of that temple are still there. I've seen it. And you can go there and go up Mount Gerizim and look across to Mount Ebal and look down to Shechem and see where Jacob's well is, Nablus. I couldn't go into Nablus because that's, that's dangerous territory. In, in Palestinian territory. So the 5th century, they, they built a temple up there. A little quick background here. In the 2nd century B.C., the high priest in Jerusalem, the Jewish high priest, who they called Yohanan Kohen Gadol, uh, 
great, 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 great grandfather, I think of Gal Gadot, but I don't know, could be, maybe not. Johann Cohen Gadol, which literally translates John the high priest, you may have heard his name is John Hyrcanus. And John Hyrcanus called for the destruction of the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, and they destroyed it, wiped it out. There was no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other, and the hatred went both ways. Samaritans and Jews, even regarding their places of worship, were very different than each other. Part of Sammy's problem is that she is trying to do what what a lot of people do, and that is confine worship to a location. This is where worship happens. You say it's there. We say it's right here. But listen, and this is a repeat, but we are several generations now into an incorrect cultural mindset that says worship is my thing. Worship is my deal. It's intimate. Don't talk to me about it. This is between me and God. And what we've done in that mentality is we've taken the benefits and the blessings of worship to be its purpose. Worship does bless me. And I am greatly benefited from worship. And if we have a worship night here at the bridge, I want to be here because I know the benefit that it brings to me. But I'll tell you what, it's the wrong reason. And I know it's the wrong reason because that's why people don't come to a worship night. It's not going to really do anything for me. It's not like we're going to have teaching. It's just a worship night. And we don't come because we weigh the benefits. Staying home with the family, relaxing in the evening, or or going out to the church just for worship? No. I mean, if they were going to do something, if there was at least a potluck afterwards, maybe. This mindset where the benefits become the purpose. The purpose is God. Worship is for him. What is his pleasure? We bow down, bend the knee, lick the hand, kiss the son, because it's for him. Now, if that was the mentality, I can tell you this, every worship night we had at the bridge would be packed out if we were thinking, God's showing up. God will be there. If I told you next Wednesday night, Jack Hibbs, Amir Sarfati, and, um, oh, let's let's throw in J.D. Farage, they're going to be here to do a prophecy teaching next Wednesday night here at the bridge. You think we'd have a good turnout? Do you know that Jesus is here every Wednesday night? Jesus Christ is here. And I I hate schedules. I get it. We're all busy. Stuff going on in our lives. I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone. I'm just saying, where is our heart when it comes to worship of the Father? And, And get this too. When Jesus says, down in verse 23, and I'll come back to it, but he says, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Notice that he says worshipers, plural, but then he uses the word worship. The true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And worship is also plural, which indicates a plurality of worshipers together. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three have gathered in my name together, 
I'm there in their midst. So it doesn't need to be a multitude, doesn't need to be a mega church, but God does desire a worship that is manifested in a plurality of believers gathered together, honoring him, praising his name, worshiping him. We gather for that. And that, let me say this clearly, that is the primary reason we gather. It is not teaching. Teaching is significant. Teaching is, again, an aspect of worship. But we gather to worship our God and Father. We gather to praise the name of Jesus. That's why we meet. Be it Sunday or Wednesday or any other time, that is the singular purpose for our gathering as God's people. Why? Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I think we can make the argument that nobody knew personal worship better than David. Man after God's own heart, off in the caves, fleeing from Saul. How many times in his life do we see Jesus, David off and alone worshiping the Lord? And yet, David loved and longed for large-scale community worship. Over and over we hear in the Psalms, things like Psalm 35, 18, I will give thanks to you in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. And there are things you can't do by yourself, worship-wise, that we do together. And in that case, as far as I'm concerned, the greater the throng, the greater, the better. The larger the turnout, the better. Why? So we can be all jazzed that we had a lot of people show up? No, because God deserves it. Look at heaven. Look at the multitudes gathered around the throne. That's never thrown in our face in terms of numbers of people going to church, by the way. God never says, you at the bridge are averaging what? I don't know, 300, 400? How many people are you averaging there? Have you seen my throne room? Multitudes, mega church. He never does that. The point is, it is all about him and all the angels in heaven, what do they want to do? Worship him. Gather around him. What will we want to do when we're there? Worship him. When people say, we're just going to worship for all eternity, I'm, I say, you're going to want to. It's not a matter of have to. It's you're going to want to do that so badly, someone's going to say, let's get lunch. You're going to be, go on without me. I'm here. But it's worshiping together. How would you feel if I told you we were having a celebration in your honor and you show up and two or three people come? Out of the whole church. We invite the whole church, but two or three people take the time to show up for your birthday celebration at the church. We've had worship nights where a handful of people show up and I really wonder, not, not what is our experience, we have a great time. I wonder what does that say to the Lord about our hearts what does he deserve from us if not all of us in praise and honor together to his name? See, when you shift it from self and put it on Savior, everything changes. When I'm not thinking about myself, I don't care if I'm getting out of the office and I may not even have time to eat. So what? We're going to worship because it's Jesus Back to the story. Despite her verbal dodges, 
Sammy unwittingly opens the door to some of the most significant teaching on worship in the word of God. And Jesus begins in verse 21. Woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I think that's cool because he says, will you worship the Father? So he's assuming she's going to be worshiping the Father. He's already way ahead of her. He's already got her salvation tagged. He already knows you're not going to worship him here. You're not going to worship him there. You're going to be worshiping him. True worship, a couple of things to jot down. True worship is uncontainable. It is uncontainable. Where does worship happen? Now, I know I just said, I was just talking about being here and gathering together here for worship. That's just one place. Where does worship happen? William Cowper once said, Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. Now, I got to say this. Don't do what some people do with that. Worship is uncontainable. Worship can happen anywhere. I don't need to go to that building to worship God. I can do it on my boat. Yeah, you and Forrest Gump. I can do it on my Sunday morning hike. That's when I worship or when I'm out mountain biking. That's when I worship or on my way to Safeway or the game. No, I can worship God anywhere. Therefore, I don't have to go to that gathering place to worship. Listen, it is true that worship is uncontainable. And it is true that it is not bound to this building or roped to some religious site. However, in my experience, those who truly know how to worship and who truly do worship privately can't wait to worship publicly. That like the Samaritan woman, it's a dodge to say, I can worship God anywhere. You can. Why would you not worship him here? Why would you not want to gather? People who, the heart of worship beats so strong, they seek out the assembly of the saints. And if there's not enough happening here, they're going to go somewhere else and add that in. Worship upon worship. Worship uncontainable does not mean worship of convenience. It means, yes, I can worship anywhere. It's not about when it suits me or fits my schedule. Listen, it's like tithing. Oh, no. You're already digging us on worship, and now you're going to go for tithing? Yeah, it's just like tithing, and it's the attitudes that people have toward tithing because people will say, and I've heard the argument many times over the years, tithing is an Old Testament thing. I see it commanded in the Old Testament scripture, sure, for the Jewish people, but we're not under law, we're under grace. And I don't see tithing commanded in the New Testament. No, you're right. You know what I see? I see much more than tithing in the New Testament. I see tithing as as a nice place to start in the New Testament. And it's it's a heart issue. It's, It's a shift from what is required to how much more can I lick the master's hand? What else can I do to show worship and love and affection and trust in my Father? In the words of Paul McCartney, (laughs) worship uncontainable means here, there, and everywhere. That's worship. 
Now, now this is big because in this verse, Jesus speaks something directly to her and indirectly to all who have ears to hear. He says it twice, as a matter of fact. Verse 21, he says, an hour is coming. And then in verse 23, he says, an hour is coming. And the word is hora, very close to hour, hora. And a hora is, is coming. And in both cases, when Jesus says it here, hour is unqualified. Meaning what? Meaning, John 139 says, they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th aura, the 10th hour, qualified. It was a specific hour that John is talking about there. Or, or it was an hour that is qualified as the 10th. Okay, on the cross, he will say it was about the 6th hour. Okay, so that's, that's a qualified aura, a qualified hour. What are you getting at? listen. In John's gospel, when the word aura is left unqualified, it always points to one singular, certain, specific hour on God's calendar. An hour is coming speaks of a specific hour. An hour is coming speaks of his hour. The hour in which Jesus cried out, it is finished. An hour is coming. It is finished, and the hour had arrived. And the earth shook, and the veil was torn in the hour, or in an hour, but it's the hour of his death. That's what this is referring to, the hour of his death, when the veil was rent, and the Jerusalem temple was rendered obsolete, and the Samaritan worship at Mount Gerizim was rendered irrelevant. An hour is coming when you will neither worship here nor there, but you will worship everywhere. An hour is coming, he says. And at that moment, worship went global. <laughs> Hebrews 7, 27, he does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And until the cross, listen, until the cross, what did God say? to the Jewish people before the cross. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse five, you shall seek the Lord at the place which your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling and there you shall come, go to temple. You need to come to me. Come to me, the Lord said to Israel, where I am. Three times a year, all you males are required. Seven feasts throughout the year, come to me. Come to where I am. Come to this place. This is the place established. That's where worship happens. But an hour is coming when you will no longer worship here or there. You will worship everywhere. True worship is anywhere people bow down with faith in Jesus Christ. True worship is anytime two or three are gathered together in his name. True worship is un. Containable. Secondly, true worship is understandable. Verse 22, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So he's, I'll, I'll give this to you. There's a difference between Jews and Samaritans. I understand that. I understand you used to have a temple here. I understand this mountain's a big deal to you and, and Jerusalem is to the Jewish people. I get that, Jesus says. But he says, listen, and, and he's not denigrating her faith. He's saying, you worship what you don't know. And we worship what we do know. 
true worship is understandable. There were Samaritans, I think, who truly sought Yahweh. They still named him Yahweh. They still were looking to the one true God of their ancestry. Those who were half Jew still had that Jewish ancestry. And so they were still trying to worship him. And the debate, by the way, of Mount Gerizim versus Jerusalem, they would read Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, and say, he doesn't say. He didn't name a place. He just said, you come to the place that I will choose. And the Samaritans believed he chose Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. So we'll worship there. It wasn't until later, you know, David comes along and conquers Jerusalem, and this is the place. And, and Jerusalem's the place. But the Samaritans made the case that that's why they worship where they did. And Jesus says, you really don't know the one that you seek. We do. We the Jews. An hour is coming when he will be fully revealed beyond Judaism. I like what Carson says about that. He, this He says, the Jews stood in the stream of revelation. They stood in the stream of revelation. They didn't always get it. But they were in the stream of revelation as God from Adam forward began to reveal himself in different ways and portions through the prophets in different ways in, the, in prior times. Trying to get his people to understand who he was through Moses, you know, through Joshua, through Samuel, through the prophets, through the word, trying to get them to understand and get and, and know something about him. So there was revelation that was coming down through the prophets. The Jews stood in the stream of revelation with knowledge of the one true God who they worshiped. Enough knowledge that they knew they should lick the hand. They knew they should bow down, kneel down, honor, praise, offer sacrifice because they had a sense of the true God. The Samaritans didn't so much. Theirs was confused. Theirs was blended. It was mixed. Their idea of who God was was not spot on. Again, I think there probably were Samaritans, like I think there are all kinds of people within different aspects of the church today who really do believe in Jesus, but their church is whacked. I, well, I'm not even going to name some. You could name some. The cross changed everything. Jesus becomes the who of true worship. It's all about him. It's all revealed in him. He is the one of our heart's desire and submission. He makes clear both the object and the purpose of our worship. He makes worship comprehensible by revelation. This is all about Jesus. This is all focusing on him, looking to him. John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Worship is understandable. We worship who we know. We worship what we know. John 3, 33, if you look back there, John the Baptist says, he who has received his testimony, that is Jesus' testimony, has set his seal to this, that God is true. Why? Because if you know Jesus, you know God. And God becomes understandable in Jesus, and that's why our songs and our declarations need to be Godward, not manward. Because when they're manward and they're all about the feels, we don't get anywhere with who we know. I've, I've quoted this before to you, and it's actually kind of funny the way it comes off. You can look it up on YouTube. Alistair Begg said, don't, tell, don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. Worship shouldn't start with trying to generate 
manipulated, coerced emotion. Worship should begin with the truth. Who we know. And once we begin to declare who we know, regardless of how I can feel like garbage when I walk in this place, but I start singing to and talking about and expressing praise to the one true God, and that changes me. Then my feelings will change. Then my heart will change. Contemporary Christian music is trying so hard to reach the hearts of people with this flimsy, emotional, mushy, gooey stuff. Just sing the truth. Just tell us who he is. Just repeat scripture, and that will change hearts. And all of a sudden, all those needs and hurts and wants and desires, will the benefits will come to the worship of the one true God. Again, it's just shifting our thinking on this stuff. Samaritans had the Tahib, their own Moses figure, the Tahib. They believed the Tahib was going to come in the line of Joseph. That land, Shechem, was given to Joseph by his father Jacob. They believed it had a big deal. Joseph's tomb is there. And so they believed that, that in that lineage of Joseph, that the Tahib was going to show up, that he was going to rediscover the tabernacle, the original tabernacle of Moses. He'd rediscover that and show that. They believed that the tabernacle was in a cave under Mount Gerizim. It's all part of kind of the traditions that began to grow up around Samaritan worship. And Jesus says, you'll worship what you don't know. And we worship what we know. Today, in this country, how many people worship what they don't know? There are any number of gods and spirits and spurious spirit guides and leaders that people name and claim and follow after and say, you know, that's my guy, she's my gal. And they're always, note this, they're always shrouded in mystery. Worship of anything but the one true God. It's always mysterious. It's always hidden. There are always levels you got to go through to get there, Mormonism. Ways to, you know, you can't know all the deep truths till you're, you know, further along. We'll let you know as you need to know. And Jesus says, we worship what we know. We know God. We know who we worship. There are people who do not know the hand they lick or kiss the one they worship, and there are people who are in for a terrible shock when they find out the one that they were giving worship, praise, and honor to is the devil himself. Now, we Christians, on the other hand, do we worship him who we know? We can be so casual sometimes, so conventional in our worship that we forget that the incomprehensible God is made known in Jesus for us to worship. That he's the point. I'm so busy grabbing my coffee and hanging out that I'm not even mindset ready to come before Jesus, who is the reason we gather. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. In what, Paul? In the knowledge of him. We worship who we know. We know Jesus, and we worship the one who defines God, explains God, reveals God. 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, and this is a point of great confidence, 
I know whom I have believed. I know him, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. When worship's about me, I am really on shaky ground because I know me. (laughs) Do we know him? If you're struggling with with a heart and attitude of worship, you don't like to sing, you don't like to do the praise stuff, you're like, I'm just, not, I'm just not there, then you need to spend some time getting to know Jesus better. I would start with Revelation chapter one and spend some time looking at Jesus and then tell me that you have trouble worshiping because if you know him and you worship who you know changes everything, suddenly everything kind of falls away and you are focused and you are praying and worshiping him. We worship what we know, who we know. Now, Jesus also says salvation is from the Jews, and what he's saying by that is very clear. That's where salvation came from, Jesus himself. Salvation is from the Jews, Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, indicating Messiah, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Salvation's from the Jews, Jesus says. Romans 9, verse 4, to Israel belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service and the promises. That's all well and good. That's all history. We know that. Whose are the fathers? And we go, yes, that's true too. We've studied Torah. We know this. And from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. That's Jesus from the Jews. And momentarily, Jesus will tell the Samaritan woman, salvation is from this Jew, from himself. Worship is uncontainable. It is understandable, verse 23, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I think verses 23 and 24 are the most important words on worship in the Bible. This is the most significant thing to understand when it comes to our worship of Jesus Christ and God the Father through him. Listen to it again. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's break that down quickly. I I know the hour is late, but hey, an hour is coming, so we're good. Why does now he say an hour is coming and now is? See, in the previous verse, he said an hour is coming when you'll neither worship here nor there. But now Jesus says an hour is coming and now is. Rick, you said that that hour points to the cross, but Jesus here says it now is because the period of true worship is already present in person and in the ministry of Jesus. He's here, and wherever he is, true worship can begin to happen, and Jesus said it's already starting. It's going to be three years until the cross. But he says that aura is coming. It now is because he is there, present in front of her. And this is underway. This is true, undeniably certain worship. Number three, true worship is undeniably certain. 
It can only happen in and through Jesus. So where Jesus is, worship happens and can happen and should happen. In fact, you could put it this way. Jesus is the true temple, not the one that was on Mount Gerizim and not the one that at this moment was standing in Jerusalem. Those aren't the temple. The temple is Jesus himself. And this is borne out in the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 7. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. And we experience that, by the way, right now. I look forward to the millennial kingdom. Oh, man. I look forward, well, I look forward before that just to our seven-year honeymoon in heaven, just to being around the throne and being enraptured after the rapture by Jesus and then on into the kingdom, worshiping him, seeing this world like we have never seen it before, and then into the new Jerusalem. But my friends, we experience this right now by his presence within us, the immediacy of Jesus. So wherever Jesus is, worship happens. It makes sense. Worship then is uncontainable. And it is understandable because it's about Jesus. And it is undeniably certain We experience that certainty of worship by his presence in us, but, but not all of us. Listen, God is spirit, he says. Jesus doesn't say God is a spirit. He doesn't say God is the spirit. And you can talk about either one theologically another time. But here, Jesus just says God is pneuma. God is spirit. What's he saying? He's characterizing God. Helping us understand, this is, this is the character and nature of God. He is spirit. That's who he is. In the same way that we would characterize each other by the flesh, he is by nature spirit. That's who he is. Isaiah 21, or 31 verse 3 gives a good example of this. It says, now the Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. So Jesus is making a clear contrast that God is spirit. The power in this phrase, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, depends on us being able or enabled to spiritually worship. I hope I don't lose you on this. This is really important. Stay with me. Let me come back to spirit. Hold, hold that thought. Truth. Truth. Those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Truth is undeniably certain. Our worship must be grounded in the truth, in the word of truth, which is why I say I think the best worship songs are just scripture. And just give me scripture. And put some music behind it, great. That's the best worship. It's just truth. And the word of truth, God's word, must inform and instruct our worship. Not feelings, not emotions, not the mushy musings of the songwriters and musicians and artists and minstrels, and pop Christian celebrities. Why are they defining worship for us? God already has. The word of truth instructs our worship. Well, but Rick, I love those songs. I do too. And, and it's okay that worship is and should be emotional, but not like the emotions of a Seahawks game, which is amazing how jazzed people can get at a Seahawks game, loudest place in the entire state of Washington, but we finish a worship song and it's the quietest place in the state of Washington. Yeah, but Rick, that's just hype. I know, you're right. It's emotion. 
You get the same thing out of a, you know, a moving emotional scene in a, in a, in a TV show or a movie where you're just like, wow, and tears start coming down your face and you're a little embarrassed and hoping that the lights don't come up before you can wipe your eyes. It's happened to me. Christopher and I, when we were in Ghana, didn't have a lot to do, and in the afternoons, oftentimes, we just watched soccer. Now, I had never been a big soccer fan. I hadn't watched a whole lot of soccer matches. I'm like, five hours, one point, what's the point? <laughs> I didn't get it. So we would watch these matches, and he would tell me who all the stars were, and he was very dialed in, as, as many people in Ghana and the rest of the world are. I remember watching this one match, and it was a, a, an Irish team, and I forget who the other team was, but I'm looking at these guys in the stands, big, sweaty, shirtless iron, iron Irishmen. And they're all hanging on to each other and they're rocking back and forth and they're chanting and singing their team song and everybody's in. And I looked at that and went, how come we don't worship that way? Uh, shirt's on. <laughs> but, but look at that. I mean, they're all totally wrapped up in it. Worship is more than a feeling. It will evoke feeling. It must evoke feeling. But it is, worship is truth. And by the way, truth is more than this. Truth is a person. If you want to worship, you must worship in spirit and in truth. you got to worship in Jesus, who is the truth. And by the way, he is the word. He's the word of truth. He's the logos, as John began in this Bible. But this is a great example of John defining logos for us without ever even using the word. He says, Jesus says you must worship in spirit and in Truth, John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, you're truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You won't have head knowledge of Scripture. You'll know the truth, me, Jesus says. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So true worship is undeniably certain. It is as undeniably certain as Jesus Christ is undeniably certain. That's worship. Because Jesus is the true exemplification of God. But now, let me end with this. What does it mean to worship in spirit? And this is where I think we get confused. What does it mean to worship in spirit? How do I worship in spirit? Okay, remember, God is spirit. So to worship God in spirit as he is and in truth as Jesus is, you must be born again. Or you can't worship him in spirit. You have to be born of the spirit to worship God in spirit. The true worshipers are all born again. The true worshipers have given them their lives to the truth, Jesus, that they might worship in spirit who God is coming to him as he is because now we have been given the ability to be like him in that way, born of the spirit. Can't worship any other way. Worship is uncontainable. It is understandable. It is as undeniably certain as Jesus himself and true worship, number four, final one, true worship is unquenchable. Where are they having this conversation? At a well. They are at a well. This is not accidental. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring, a well of water springing up to eternal life. You see this well, you come to draw it, this well, it's high noon, it's hot, you're dry and thirsty. I got water that will keep you refreshed. Worship that is unquenchable. Jesus meets her at the well to talk about living water and what it means to worship in spirit. And even here, she one last attempt, she tries to deflect his probing compassion. And in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What's, what's the woman's problem as she comes to the well that day? Her problem is she's trying to get the benefits of a relationship with man number six without the commitment. That's our worship problem. Coming to get the benefits of the experience without the commitment to the one we worship. Oh, I'm committed to him, Rick. Yeah, I know. So committed that you're a half hour late. Well, I'm committed to him. Yeah, I, I, I get it. So committed that, that if it's a worship night, you, you'd rather stay home and watch Netflix. Benefits without commitment. Jesus is waiting at the well for those who have been born of the Spirit to come worship him in spirit and in truth. One last verse, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. God got on his people Israel about this exact same thing. He said through the prophet, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Too much of Christian music today holds no water. Feels great in the moment, but the second you're out the door, it's gone. It just dribbles out and doesn't stay. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That's the deal. Holy Father, we pray to you this morning. And we ask for this comprehensive paradigm shift in how we approach you. In fact, Lord, I would simply ask that you would tag every one of us that before we gather, whether it's here in a home among other believers, regardless of the location, when we gather for the purpose of worshiping you, that you'll begin working on our hearts before we ever get together, before we get in the car, before we're dressing or, or showering or, or having our breakfast, before we're heading out the door. Help us to stop and realize what we're about to do, to come into the presence of Almighty God, of our sacrificed Savior, Jesus, to bow subserviently and humbly and obediently before you to kiss the hand, to lick the hand of the master, not in, not in a crude way, Lord, but in a way that honors and respects you. Father, it's my prayer, and one teaching doesn't do this for any of us, but it is my prayer that your Holy Spirit will make us a worshiping church by your definition. My prayer, Lord, is that we would worship in spirit and in truth.
in Jesus' name. Amen.